and, and also in a way that feels authentic because when it's coming from your body and when you have a certain type of energy behind, you know, that you're moving in your body, then that the ways in which you can reach people or people can feel what it is that you're feeling. It's almost like, you know, with storytelling, it's like I really, what I coach my, my students and my clients to do is, you know, how do you invite people? This to the is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 38th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and rewards that come from following it. This week I have with me Vicky Delojoyo, author and founder of The Way of Joy, a spiritual fitness program. Vicky is a transformational speaker, a life-changing workshop leader and show-stopping performer whose brand of brilliance is guiding people to claim their birthright of joy. She was inducted into the Women's Martial Artists Hall of Fame for her 40-plus years experience teaching Qigong and Qi practice. She teaches appreciative audiences to embody these lessons in their very selves, so the transformation stays with them for life. Vicky is also a coach in helping people to tell their story in the most authentic way. And she also studied mime in Paris. So she has an eclectic background and I had such an amazing time speaking with her. We are kindred spirits in so many ways. So I am looking forward to introducing you to Vicky. I'm really excited to meet you and connect, connect with you because the whole concept of the unconditioning and listening to that voice within feels to me I, I'm, I'm in the middle of reworking some of my I've been doing this work of storytelling performing and teaching this martial art for energy mm -hmm. um, for close to 50 years now mm -hmm. so I, I what I realized is that I'm starting to re rework it and so I'm really curious to see what comes out of my mouth now, <laughs> because I'm really looking at, at, at power. How, how do we, uh, particularly for women, how do we express our power and how does that reflect when we match the internal voice with the external? So um, Ooh, okay. this feels very exciting to me to, to connect with you and, and with, you know, you're such a, uh, I really love your uh, podcast. So I feel very honored that you said oh, yes. Thank you so much. I'm excited to uh, dive in with you because I feel like we're some kindred spirits in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so um, one of the first things that I like to ask my guests is, when was the first time that you realized that you have an inner authentic voice of your own? And I'm really excited to get your answer because you have such a broad spectrum of things that you've done. And in order to get to where you are now, there must have been a lot of things that you had to go through and encounter to get to that point. That's a wonderful question. And of course, my mind goes in so many different places. But I think that I grew up in a family um, in New York City uh, where um, I was just a little different. And I think probably a lot of your listeners um, uh, talking about unconditioning <clears throat> or thinking about unconditioning are, are really um, have experienced that, that, that I, um, New York, it, for, I live in California now, but for me, New York was very much about like, what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. and you got to get stuff done. And people were defined by how much they could get done in a day. And stress was sort of the underlying um, value 
core value. Uh, and and I, I think that, um, so early on, I always felt like a little different. It was like, well, what if we didn't feel stressed? What if it was something where we were actually allowed to express ourselves from the core, from who we are? And I can remember thinking that even when I was five, six, seven years old, um, my dad was a composer oh. and he was, he was very, uh, um, sort of old school Italian. So he was very, very driven and very sort of like work, work oriented. Uh, and his belief was that women and girls should be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, and then my mom was actually fairly vocal. And so there was this constant fighting between the two of them. And what I noticed is that in that, in the stress of that, it was almost like watching bullets fly <laughs> overhead in the stress of that, um, I really came to a place where it was like, what would peace look like? How would I feel inner peace? How can I let go of this sort of the legacy of, of feeling like I'm always uh, in between, but rather centered? Does, mm -hmm. that, does that make sense? So even Absolutely, if I'm listening, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you might've been very empathetic as a child also, um, taking on the energies of your parents and your environment of just the rhythm of New York. Yes. And, and of course, I became my worst fear because, well, I mean, I was very New York identified <laughs> when I moved to California. I was afraid I was going to become one of those woo woo people yeah. whose feet barely touch the ground and who just feel like, you know, it's, it's basically like like uh, not not really grounded mm -hmm. uh, and, and believe in energy and all that kind of stuff. And of course, that's how I've been making my living for the past 30 something years. So <laughs> I became my own worst fear, yeah. uh, which is really actually coming back to my own authentic voice, I think. Yeah. Um, your father was a composer. So that is very interesting because like, what did he compose? He was a classical music uh, composer, so he did a lot. He wrote a lot of symphonies. He wrote four of the ballets that Martha Graham danced. He wrote um, a lot of choral work. Oh, wow. uh, he, he was very, very prolific over his lifetime. He produced tremendous amount. I don't even know how many pieces he actually wrote. So was he an influence on you to sort of engage with your creative voice? Actually, he, he, I think he suffered as a creative. And so I think he tried to drum that out of me. He also thought, you I mean, I remember him saying women don't have any creative energy, mm -hmm. um, that they're right. meant to just be mothers. Um, and so that was, uh, so, he, so I, although I feel like I have inherited in just in my DNA, part of that part that, I mean, I feel very aligned in a way, because he was very much of a, he did his own thing. And I'm somebody who's done that too. In fact, we had, he had disowned me when I was younger. And when we reconnected after, um, towards the end of his life, um, and we were having some deep conversations, I, he, he was like, you know, well, you, you don't have any talent, you don't this, you don't that. And I realized as I started to come to my own center, and I sort of was responding to him from a place of open curiosity, as opposed to defending who I am, um, that I really feel like I, I, uh, what I told him is that I feel like I'm like you because you are somebody, he, he was somebody who never really wanted input from anybody else. When he started writing for bands, for instance, um, I remember hearing him on, interviewed on the radio and they asked him, you know, did you study a lot of band music so you could translate some of this music into bands? And he said, oh no, I just write what I hear. And I realized that for me, as a, somebody who's sort of drawn from martial arts and from theater arts, I've been a performer since I was seven years old. And when I'm sort of combining these, the skills of what, 
it is to move energy or chi and what it is to move vibrationally when you're um, on a stage or when you're wanting to convey something that I've actually created my own thing too. And I said, I think I got that from you to him. And he was like, huh. And all of a sudden, all of his criticisms and stuff went away. Oh, wow. it, was, it was, so there is a way in which I feel like that, that, that sense of really having to hear again, that's why I love this, this program so much. It's about really hearing who you are from the inside out um, that I got that from him, even though he, he very much, you know, in terms of my childhood, discouraged, yeah. discouraged that he, he wanted me to be just a very, very feminine, very girly, mm -hmm. and which I wasn't. I was a tomboy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you were going to the beat of your own drum in yes. the rhythm of your life. <laughs> yes. And what about your mother? Was she encouraging of you to find this voice within yourself? Or was she more along the lines of your father and making you almost like a, a bird in a cage <laughs> she was um she was the antidote my mother was was like unconditionally loving everything I did she just really gave me so much support she believed in me she thought I was just the most creative person she'd ever met she was just you know she was very very supportive um when she was still married to my dad I think she was more cowed by by him and mm. and she was she was 11 years younger than him and there, there were a lot of things going on there um but as uh when she separated and as she aged she became my my very best fan oh. i uh yeah she, so i was very blessed so on the one hand i had this very negative voice on the you know it's the angel <laughs> of the devil one on each shoulder i actually had that as parents <laughs> oh well i i think you were very fortunate to have that <laughs> i was i yeah. feel i feel so lucky to have had her as my mom absolutely yeah so growing up um in new york um your father is italian is your mother italian also no, she was Jewish, uh, Polish. Uh, Pol her 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 people for were from Poland, um, and basically came over a around the time of the Holocaust or right before. So, um, okay. So, did your family have any spiritual practices or mm -hmm. that kind of thing that they introduced you to? No, no. In fact, that's probably why I've kind of created my own system. My my dad had been uh, Catholic, and he. But but I, I, there's this this I remember reading this in the world book. He was in the world book that he at the age of 18 had to decide between being a composer, a baseball player, or a priest. And he chose composing. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time I was born, he called himself an atheist. My mom was more of agnostic, more kind of open to well, maybe there's something there. And mm -hmm. as she was dying, when I was with her, when she was dying, she really landed in a place of absolute love. It was just really what the only thing that mattered to her was yeah. was love, which feels like a very spiritual place to to land. Um, but so I grew up without anything, but I was always fascinated by ritual and rite and temples and churches and mosques. And I was always really drawn to these places where religion happened. And at the same time, I didn't feel myself there. So yeah. spirituality and the development of my spirituality really came through my practice of Qigong, which is a Chinese martial art for healing. Um, and and for me, it, it's it's a very broad qigong is a very broad word. It covers a lot of different territory. But for me, it's it's a spiritual practice. It's a way to align my wisdom or the yeah. guidance that I might have with my heart and then with my actions. Okay. And so you said you began performing when you were seven. Yeah. Um, was yeah. that by choice or was that something that you were pushed into? Oh. Uh, 
kind of both. My my I was extremely shy. I could barely speak. I couldn't speak. I, I was very shy around other kids. I was shy around grown-ups. And my mom um, decided to, in her wisdom, to decided to have me audition for a, a summer stock production of Finian's Rainbow. <laughs> and I got in as one of the little kids in Finian's Rainbow. And I fell in love with it. And I think it was partly because I could kind of put on a persona that was that I could hide behind you know, oh, yeah. at, that, at that point. And so it was like a way of being out there, but where it wasn't as quite, didn't feel as personally risky. Anyway, I fell in love with it. And so I started training in theater. Then um, I started going to theater classes and stuff. Really teen, I was in a teen repertory company. I, was, I did that a lot as a kid, acting, theater. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. I was very shy too, and also fell in love with theater from a really young age. So, oh wow, um, yeah, I, I can relate to that so much. Did, did you did you perform in? Were you um? Did you take theater classes and all of that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It created a, a a bit of a monster, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> a monster in terms of loving, loving, yeah, being yeah. on stage. And here yeah. you are hosting this wonderful podcast <laughs> another way. Yes, but also, so you said that um, you found this love for theater. So do you feel like looking back, that was a way for you to connect with your inner voice, even though you might have been portraying other characters? Um, was it a way for you to really connect with yourself? I love that question because absolutely yes. And I, I actually started um, in my teens go going into mime uh, and doing a lot of mask work because the mask work, it wasn't so much anymore about hiding behind the mask, but the mask would allow me to reveal or bring forward aspects of myself that I hadn't really explored. So I think that there's a way in which um, theater really brought me back to myself. And there's such a power in terms of telling stories, how we tell stories, both the stories we tell ourselves and how we and, and how we um, craft those mm -hmm. in terms of what we say to other people. Um, so I think that that theater was a way of sort of dropping away the the because you know really the shyness and the the hiding was was also not authentic. That was just fear, right? right. Fear that I wouldn't be accepted. And with with theater games, and I'm in a, I've been in an improvisation company for 26 years now. We do something called playback theater where people come from the audience and they, they tell stories from their own lives and the actors and musicians play oh, it wow. back on the spot, okay. listening for the story under the story. So it's a very almost therapeutic mm. way of, you know, being seen and heard. Um, so there's something about that, that theater that feels like if anything, it, wa it was my path into myself. I love that question because of so many people, and I know so many actors have such a big front that you don't yeah. even know that that's so, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it gives you the opportunity and the space, I feel like, to acknowledge yourself um, when you're not quite ready, perhaps, to meet yourself. <laughs> that's right. I think that that's really right. And it's and it's also a path to meet yourself, to find out who you are when when you're 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 kind of exploring these different ways of expressing yourself. It's really powerful. Yeah, for sure. So you are no longer in New York. So I, I think you went to Europe. Did you go to Europe for studying theater? I did. I went to Europe to study mime. Uh, and I studied, actually, I had met Marcel Marceau uh, oh, wow. at, a, at a thing <laughs> in, in New York. And I, I talked to him. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a Alliance Francaise thing. And so I asked him about it. And he, he said, well, you should go study with my teacher. And so I went and studied with 
Etienne de Creux, who was Marceau's teacher, they had a very fraught relationship. But <laughs> I studied with him. And then I also ended up studying with Marcel Marceau's ex-wife, Ella Jaroszewicz, who was a Polish mime. Um, so I, I, got, I got immersed in mime, actually, and had a little mime group, uh, two guys and me, who did a lot of street mime in Paris <laughs> and in Switzerland, different places. So yeah, mine became, wow. yeah, right? <laughs> and, and so mine became, you know, just the whole idea of how do we express ourselves through our body? And that's really, for me, you know, that, that's where sort of the martial art of Qigong mm. and, the, and the storytelling all come together because it's all fine-tuned body-based uh, expression. Wow, okay. So just the experience of being in Europe is very transformational in my experience. And for you to be there studying mime and having that tool when, did you know the language? Uh, um, I had had, I had French classes in high school, which means nothing really. When I got there, <laughs> I went to the Alliance Francaise and, and I, um, and then I, I, I took a month or something like that of just conversational French and, you know, learned it along the way. And eventually it became easier and easier. And um, I, I, so I, I became fairly fluent at that point. Yeah. How did, how did that affect your, your inner voice, your authenticity being oh, over there? Oh, what a there. great question. Yeah. What a quick, I, I knew I was fluent when I started dreaming in French, right? <laughs> That's when I knew it was like, okay, I think I really speak this language now. But I think that um, it's really, you know, I think there's something about being in another country that allows you to reflect on what it is, you know, what's happening here. Uh, what, what is the United States and what does that mean? And what does that look like? There's a perspective that I, you can get by being with people from very, very different cultures. Um, and I think for me, it was really about recognizing that, um, uh, I, I think what I ended up doing was realizing that there's a way in which I could be me no matter what. So it wasn't like I did some big transformation by being in France. I really developed the physicality of the ways in which I perform or the ways in which I tell stories or the ways in which I coach people because mm -hmm. I coach entrepreneurs and speakers on how to tell a story so that they're energetically being, that, that people can feel what they're yeah. saying, not just hear a bunch of words. Mm -hmm. um, so so um, I, I think that there's just something about also being seen as an American and, and what does it mean and how do I you know, get out of the ugly American trope and, um, and, and still uh, allow myself to come forward. Uh, so I think that there's a way in which I trusted myself more by the time I came back from Europe. I went, I actually came back, I, I worked for a while to earn more money to go back and study mm -hmm. some more. Yeah. Um, and I think that I, I think that I, I think that it was, it was actually something that, that helped me own myself on a whole other level. Is that, you sound like you've been to Europe too, or you've been, you've, yeah. is, that what, is that what your yeah. experience was? I feel like it allowed me to tap into my intuition a little more just because I didn't have all of the normal tools that I had to communicate or even be present that I was used to because I was completely out of my element. Right. Yeah. And then when the language, when you don't really know the language, then the, the you know, what are the other signals that you're right. how are you reading people energetically and exactly. what, are their, what is their body language saying? Uh, so. And then to incorporate mime into that too is pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, so have you found that the mime work has given you more of an insight into body language and emotional intelligence on a different level than... Put it this way, I learned 
from, through, through doing mime and doing these physicalized practices, which were highly disciplined and very, very um, fine-tuned, right? Very fine-tuned in terms of how you move your hand or how you cock your head or any of these things, mm. um, that that it it does it, it, it basically it then then observing how do different people walk or how do different people um, speak or what who uses their hands and who doesn't and if you don't use your hands what how is it coming through your body in other ways or how does you know that 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 sense of how do we read one another and that's partly an energetic thing and it's partly just sort of data that you're gathering in your brain from watching how somebody is responding that 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 I think that it it does it, it does bring you to a place where you're you're really able to 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 read people in a different way and then also you know as somebody who performs or who tells stories or who wants to sort of embody different characters or different emotional states of being mm -hmm. where does that resonate you know so if I'm you know, if I'm in a situation where I'm, I'm talking about being really scared and, you know, then my shoulders go up and my, my chest goes back a little bit, or, you know, if I'm talking about being very aggressive and I lean forward and my head is forward. So things like that, where I start to notice and, you know, and have read that in people and then start to embody it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Definitely gave you a tool to add to your toolbox um, exactly. in order to be able to portray stories in an effective way. Yes. Yes, yes. And, and, and also in a way that feels authentic, because when it's coming from your body, and when you have a certain type of energy behind, you know, that you're moving in your body, then that the ways in which you can reach people or people can feel what it is that you're feeling. It's almost like, you know, with storytelling, it's like I really, what I coach my, my students and my clients to do is, you know, how do you invite people into the movie of what you're saying? So if you're telling, for example, if you're a speaker and you're telling them, you're, you're, you're wanting to talk about your story and how you came to do what you do, the business that you do mm -hmm. and so forth, then, you know, the more you can embody it, you know, show not tell is a, is a, you probably know that as a theater person, it's a, you know, it's an old, uh, what caveat or whatever that 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 people say is instead of just talking and talking and talking and being a talking head how do you show mm -hmm. that how, how do you demonstrate it so that it becomes alive as opposed to just um in the head yeah uh and at what point did you incorporate the martial arts into your life um i started doing i it's interesting i started doing tai chi chuan when i was 17 years old and I first encountered it in theater school. I had come to mm -hmm. San Francisco to study at a theater school here. And they, um, and this was way back in the late 60s, and they had brought Tai Chi as a Tai Chi for actors class. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, it didn't really mean anything to me at the time. The teacher was a, a very old, you know, probably the age I am now, but anyway, old Chinese man and his claim to fame or people were, you know, the big buzz about him was that he had a a newborn with his young wife and it was like you know tai chi and virility were somehow linked and for me <laughs> as a young lesbian i could have cared less about that particular um aspect but as i was doing the movement i all i can say is it just felt like coming home i i, I didn't i had never seen tai chi before i you know i it wasn't being done in the parks in the ways it is now i hadn't really known about it but as I was doing the movement, there was something in me that just got really settled. Mm. Talk about coming to your own authenticity or to your own, the, the truth of who you are. There was something in me that just got very core, quiet, inner listening. 
Um, and I loved it. And then when I came back to New York, I started studying and I stood and then I, I just kept doing it. The other part, so that was the Tai Chi part, but the other part was that I had had, um, had, had been physically attacked um, as a young lesbian. And that's part of why I decided to do other types of martial arts. And I started doing um, more fighting arts uh, so that it was a kind of a combination, but the, but the Tai Chi kept calling me because the Tai Chi is actually a martial aspect of something called Qigong, mm -hmm. um, but it's, uh, but it's still very slow and, you know, there, there's martial applications of it. Um, but then I started to move into Qigong because I started to work with, I mean, I have a lot of stories about what that is, but there's yeah. a concept called Wei Qi. And I think this also has to do with the unconditioning piece, which Wei Qi has to do with your external energy, how you show up, mm -hmm. how you're in your, what I call your power presence. Um, and in Chinese medicine, it's just about what protects you against pathogens and allergens. What, you know, what is it that takes care of you? But in, in the energetic field, it's really something that emanates from you. So when you see someone walk in a room and you go, oh, I don't want to talk to that person, or I really want to find out more about them just because you feel something from yeah. them, mm -hmm. that's their Wei Qi field. And that can expand and contract. And there's ways to do that. That all became very fascinating for me. And it became actually the dominant thing was, and, and then I started to think about, well, what if we could take these energetic concepts and use them in our lives um, to, uh, to, to create what we want? You know, how, how do we, how do we do that? So you know, in terms of storytelling, it would be how do, how do we engage our audience? But in terms of, um, you know, just general, I teach Qigong classes and it's, it's a lot of people who come, it's really about how do they take a vision they have in their head, then let that resonate in their heart and then make something happen. How do you walk your talk? Wow. I'm just, I'm thinking of you having this experience and then also having the mime experience on top of that and it's such like an embodied expression both of them combined um, that had to be kind of magical to combine those two things yeah it really was it, it really is it still is and and the fact that it's a it's they're both disciplines they're both practices right mm -hmm. you can't not do the, these practices and have them continue you need you need to kind of di dive in all the time with them yeah. so so there's the techniques, but then there's also the sense of living it. How do we live this? How do we live our story? How do we yeah. live ourselves from the inside out? Wow. Okay. So, so these techniques, did they allow you to gain more confidence about being yourself? Um, because I see, I saw that you do, did solo performance. So did you do solo performance about your own life and talk about your story? Uh, I, I, yes. Yeah, the, the short answer is yes. I've done a lot of different types of solo performance and I've also directed mm -hmm. numerous, I can't even count them, how many uh, solo performers I've, I've, I've directed. But, um, but yes, the main, the, the, the main one that I did for the longest is called um, What's Wrong with a Mouse? And it was actually the story of my, my relationship with my dad um, and, how, and my own personal transformation mm -hmm. process uh, where he had disowned me basically for being queer and then we had, we, we had, um, well, in total about 20 minutes, 20, 20 years where we didn't speak, it felt like 20 minutes, but uh, <laughs> 20 years where we didn't speak. And then I started working with something called powerful non-defensive communication, which is this brilliant um, woman, Sharon Ellison has created the system of how do we, how do we communicate in a way that's not 
defensive. And for me, that coincided then with this concept of Wei Qi, the energy that you put out. How do you speak in a way that you're really owning your power presence? Um, and how do you emit that mm -hmm. in such a way that allows you to be completely, because when we're defensive, we're not really authentic, right? We're right. Busy, busy trying to protect ourselves. Yeah. Have you, have you gone back to that shy little girl and thought about the transformation that you've made up to the point to be able to share a story about your own life and not be hiding behind a character? Oh yeah, I mean, I it, for me to have to tell my story, particularly my story in relationship to my dad, who had been fairly he had been fairly emotionally abusive, um, uh, to be able to reveal any of that really required a lot of dialogue with that child self. Um, and so she's with me all the time. I, my nickname for her is Carissima because she's somebody who wants to take care of everybody all the time, mm. and I think she did that partly as a self protective mechanism. Um, but, but yeah, uh, having that, that young part that's shy, um, she now gets to play. Mm -hmm. So she, she actually has a lot of fun because I, I actually embody her in, in one of my shows, uh, what's wrong with a mouse, um, of being a little, little kid, um, who is in this world of classical music and pretty high end artists. I mean, Martha Graham was in our house a lot. Uh, wow. Horowitz played the piano in our living room yeah. frequently. Uh, you know, Frank Lesser, who wrote How to Succeed in Business and oh, yeah. Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Right? He was basically a godfather wow. figure. Okay. So I was around these people all the time. Mm -hmm. And and um, and they, particularly Frank, was somebody who really encouraged me to, to play. Um, and so she she would come out of her shell around certain people and then, you know, get pushed back in because my dad didn't want me to make too much noise. But I I uh, I think that 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 child self is really happy with what I get to do for a living. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, OK, I always knew I had something to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That it's very um powerful to be able to like even for me to hear about that transformation so I can't imagine to be the one who's experienced it <laughs> yeah yeah I I have it's it's a lot of good fortune I've had a lot of angels in my life so yeah, yeah. so are you currently in San Francisco I'm in Oakland okay. across the bridge I'm in the Bay Area and the work that you're doing I imagine that uh, the pandemic must have interrupted your lifestyle a bit with performing. <laughs> it, ha it, it has, although uh, interestingly, I'm performing on Zoom this this coming Saturday. I, I, um, so so yes, uh, it the, the, the theater company sort of had to do a transition in terms of how we play back people's stories on Zoom. Um, in terms of my teaching and coaching, I'm still working with people on their stories. And part of it is there's a healing aspect, right? There's a healing, and I really like thinking about the healing power of storytelling, that, that when we own our story, when we can tell our story in a way that's not just about the dry, you know, then I did this, then I did that, then I did this. And it's also not so lost in the details that we get lost in the weeds, but when we can really hone in on, what is my story and why does it matter and why might that be useful for somebody else? I do, I still do that type of private coaching quite a lot. Um, and I, some of the classes that I was teaching on storytelling 
I love doing live. And so I've done some of them online and, uh, and I'm starting to do them again by sort of popular demand, mm -hmm. but it's a little harder because I really like to have a, a, create a good safe space for people to take risks to tell the real story behind their story. Yeah. And what, what are some of the ways that you're able to get that authenticity out of people in order to make their stories more engaging or effective to? I'm endlessly curious. So I ask a lot of questions. So somebody will be up on the stage and basically I, when, when I teach classes, I hotspot one person at a time, right? And everybody has their time on stage and then I engage with them. So I have them start to tell their story. And then when I see a certain emotion or a certain energy come through, I say, stay with that. And I have them stay with it. So something more comes out and then I'll just ask them or I'll dialogue with them in whatever character or aspect that they're wanting to tell. Uh, and then the shaping comes after that. But basically what I, it's an excavation process. Mm -hmm. And all I can really say is that my main technique is questions, curious questions. What, you know, what, what made you do that? Or what were you thinking when you said that? Or what was behind that? Or what do you think he was thinking then? Just questions um, that, that, that then helps elicit more of the story. So I think that people want to tell their story. It's just they don't necessarily know how, or they don't necessarily know what's interesting or what isn't. Yeah. So that, that I can help with that. I, I have, I, for some reason, I have just this, it's, it's a talent, right? It feels like something I was just, I just came in with because it's effortless for me, mm -hmm. but people always say, how do you do that? And they, they've learned so much from watching me direct or coach people. And I'm so glad because, you know, it's, 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 um, having people come out and shine is, you know, there's no greater joy for me, no greater joy. Yeah. Well, you also have to be really in touch with your own self and your own voice and your own authenticity to be able to recognize it in others, I feel like. Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I, I you know, I, I, uh, I like to think that that's true. I certainly have further to go. I always have further to go, but I have done a lot of work, inner work on myself over these years. Um, it, it matters. I, I wanted to be healthy and happy. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, since you've been in this business for a while, what are some of the biggest uh, transformations that you've seen as a collective as people are telling their stories? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think that I had, well, I keep thinking of this one person that I had who was a speaker and storyteller, and she said she used to be so bored by her own story, and now she can't wait to tell it that feels really important to me, um, that there's joy for her in the, in the process. Um, others, you know, I mean, there's certainly speakers who've, you know, increased their sales or drawn more clients to them, that kind of thing, which is very, very good. I don't mean to underplay it, but the, the healing piece of it, um, you know, I, I'm just sort of thinking about one person who uh, had had a very hard, hard, um, painful, uh, experience in her past where she had basically her creativity had gotten kind of leveled right she had gotten this negative very negative experience and everything everything flattened for her and she kind of got became numb for years um, and in telling of her story and in acting out what had happened and how she navigated it and how she became she said she was like her her, her body was out there and she was moving it like a puppet but the internally that the, that she was having this totally different experience. And as she acted that out, I could watch 
that the integration was actually happening, that she and this external sense became one and, and her ability to talk about it just got bigger and bigger. It was amazing. So it was not just healing for her. I think it was healing for anybody who has felt injured or harmed by, um, by attack on creativity. Mm -hmm. Do you implement the energetic uh, components of your experience and your intuition? Is that something that is intentional and you direct people or is it just something that's a part of you and natural um, and you don't need to share it? Oh, no, it's, I, 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 I do need to share it and it is intentional. Every Qigong class that I teach, in, especially live, includes some kind of improv theater based, you know, how do we get things going and get rolling the way we you can in theater games where you have fun and laughter. Yeah. So I, I include that in these energetic practices. And then whenever I teach, you know, speaking, storytelling classes, I include Qigong as a way of how do we expand that energy? How do we let ourselves really be as big as we truly are? So they are so integrated uh, in my mind or in my being because they've kind of gone along parallel course for me, right? right. I've always done these theater games and practices and I've always done these, um, <laughs> these energetic spiritual practices. And so, you know, for me to combine the best of both of these worlds to really let storytellers you know, to have their stories really land and for them to have the kind of impact that they know they were born to do or were born to have. Um, so it's it's very intentional and, 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 and it also depends on the client, right? When I'm working one-on-one -on -one with people, um, if, if somebody is particularly stiff or particularly feeling shy, I need to get them to the place where right. they energetically believe in themselves. And so sometimes Qigong is the perfect antidote. Other times when I'm have somebody's working on qigong and but they're still that they're still feeling like it doesn't mean anything. It's just empty moves and they're just kind of doing this. I, you know, what is the story behind the move and what are you telling yourself? For example, if you're doing a move where you're bringing your arms down the front of your body, um, making circles basically. How do you, you know, if you think about you're bringing guidance through your body and imbuing yourselves with it. So you know, there's a storytelling part to the qigong that helps make it richer deeper make it what i call applied qigong so it's applying to different circumstances in your life that you're wanting to see improvement in whether it's your health or your mental health or your emotional health yeah have you found uh resistance within adding those qigong techniques especially in more corporate or business scenarios I, you know, I, I, sometimes there, there have definitely been some, there, there has, I remember one time I went to do a team building thing in a corporate setting. And, um, as soon as I got there and I started doing these games and everyone was like, I hate, you know, I hate it, or, you know, um, and, but what I realized really quickly was they were in no place that they were wanting to play. They needed to have a dialogue among themselves. So I ended up putting on a different hat and doing sort of this non-defensive communication process to get people to be able to speak to one another from a place where they could really hear one another. So that, that I left the theater games to the side. It wasn't appropriate. So when, I have a very big toolbox. So when I hit resistance, I don't try to persuade you know, the, the, the Qigong concept, there's something called Wu Wei, which is basically just allowing things to unfold. And yeah. so I just sort of pivot and shift to something else. Um, you know, I do have people who come to my, my storytelling classes who are shy 
Um, but I usually find, usually there's a way, I, everyone always has a permission to create their own boundary of what they're willing to do and what not willing to do. So that's already creating safety. But then as you know, I, can, I usually am able to kind of encourage people and to see that nothing terrible will happen and they're supported along the way. So. <laughs> yeah, you're probably also able to access that little girl again and remember uh, yeah, what it's like. Yeah, yeah. empathic, right? <laughs> I, I know what it's like to feel shy and like, oh my God, I can't do that. I'll feel stupid. I know what that feels like down to my bones. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of storytelling, is there any one story in particular that really inspires you? Oh, so many stories inspire me. Um, I heard a story not long ago on, on the radio, and I'm really sad that I didn't get her name. I, I think that I tuned in in the middle of it, but she was um, somebody, she was an African-American woman who was working with clans uh, people or ex-clans people, people who were, she was creating dialogue for people who were um, over white supremacists and talking to them, listening to their stories and them hearing her stories. You know, it's, it's sort of like the kind of work that I think Desmond Tutu did in his Truth and Reconciliation Project um, of, you know, just starting to humanize people right to to mm -hmm. to get to a place where we could hear each other's stories these type of big transformational social justice things are the things that i think that inspire me the most uh, yeah yeah do you feel that theater in general is doing a good job at presenting these issues or where do you feel that they could improve well theater is a very broad broad <laughs> right so we've got we've got you know Oklahoma, and, you know, old, old school musicals. We've got the new musicals like Come From Away, which is wonderful, yeah. transformative story. Um, so some of them are doing great job and some of them are just, you know, it's, I think that there's a, there's an emergence. I'm always interested in the new theater that's coming yeah. out, the new times of expression. There's an emergence of, you know, giving voices to people who haven't had enough space to have their voices heard. Uh, love that what's coming out from, um, various uh, companies of color and um, uh, but, but in general as a, as, a, as a good job not particularly I think there's a lot of old school holdback yeah. that, that's not allowing for the type of um, evolution that I feel is happening on the planet right we've kind of got this on the planet there's evolution of consciousness happening on one hand on the right. other hand there's almost a devolution of like you know clinging to old ways that are harmful so um so that's a i know that's a kind of yeah it place seems, to go it's it seems that there's a an interesting kind of chance and movement with the recognition of like intimacy directors now coming onto sets and um with oh, the, yeah. The, yeah with like just uh recognizing actors as humans and and respecting them in that way yes um Yes. So, but but on the other, at the same time, they're, they're asking actors to take risks that they've never taken before. Right. right. Yeah. Especially for intimacy scenes and making love and all of that kind of stuff. We know we're seeing things on screen that, you know, certainly when I was younger was not even. Yeah. I remember our dream of Beanie was a big deal because she wasn't <laughs> allowed to show her belly button. So. <laughs> so so I'm I'm kind of curious actually about your opinion on the boundaries energetically of actors when they're put into those situations 
Oh, you know, I, I don't have much of an opinion because I haven't really experienced it or been in that particular mm-hmm. field. Um, but I always feel like boundaries, you know, are essential for um, safety. And I want to be clear when I say boundaries, I, I, the sen- I have a book that I call The Way of Joy, which is basically based on my life mm-hmm. work with the Qigong. And, and the um, central chapter is called Boundaries Dissolve Barriers. And so um, barriers are like, I won't do that, I can't, as opposed to, I, this is not something that I choose to do at this time. I mean, there's different ways, right? Yeah. There's different energies between what's a barrier, putting up a wall, which is kind of like porcupine quills and a boundary, which I think of as being, you know, flexible, resilient, and yeah. also, you know, protective. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what it would be like to have to, um, you know, do some of the, take some of the risks, physical, you know, vulnerability risks that actors take now. I mean, I take emotional risks, but that's, you know, um, I always want to respect that. And it, it really also depends on what's the motivator behind yeah. it. You know, what is the, what is, what, which I think, you know, I've heard a lot of actors say, you know, it's like they'll, they'll take off their clothes if it really moves the thing forward, but if it's not, right really relevant then why do that mm-hmm. so okay. i don't know i i yeah. i don't know what do you think i i you know do yeah. you have an opinion about it i think it's really fascinating especially how sometimes the relationship of characters can trickle into personal lives and we're not really taught how to separate those things we're not right. given like tools to be like okay the show's over go back to your life there's right. there's not a way in which we were taught to be able to separate those two worlds so it's so true yeah Yeah. so true it's it's something i think to learn right to study to 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 explore um yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i think i think there's a chance for that kind of direction to come into the scene um if we allow that to, to happen Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that would be really healthy, right? It would be a really healthy way to, to explore these more delicate situations and, and, and to really um, allow people to, again, it's about coming right back to you, right? Back to the authenticity, right. to the, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to just doing something because you're told to or because, yeah, how, 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 where, do, where do those transitions happen and how do you actually articulate them and clarify them so people know where they are? Mm-hmm. Especially because actors feel, I, th- I think they feel pressured to just say yes to most things, even if they're uncomfortable, just because that's the way things Certainly in, in traditional theater, for sure. I mean, I think that's part of why I'm so drawn to doing non-traditional mm-hmm. theater, right? The storytelling, um, one-woman yeah. show, my, my theater company, which is you know, all based on deep sensitivity and yeah. deep listening. Um, that's that's the kind of thing I like to see and it's the kind of thing I like to do. So, you know, in, tr- in terms of traditional theater, I took another, I took another yeah. road I under- for that I reason. Yeah. Partly for, partly for that reason, mm-hmm. you know, I want to create my own, I want to create my own. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> what does storytelling, what is what does that mean to you as far as the ways in which that it can transform the world? I think that if people could really hear each other's stories and really be able to, I think it creates a culture of empathy. When you're able to hear stories, when you're able to feel your story is being heard, 
I think a lot of the urgency and the defensiveness and the aggression starts to dissipate. dissipate. So I think of storytelling as a, as a healing tool in any circumstance. It's, you know, it's sort of the, the, the basis for restorative justice. It's the basis for what, you know, some of the shifts that happened in South Africa, which was so brave of Mandela. I mean, it was, it's, 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 you know, I think that storytelling is when, when it's storytelling, not whether it's a story that's about, you know, that's a myth or that's a, a fable or whether it's a story about your life, that when we can start to really go into the depth of what our stories are and really hear one another, everything can shift. Uh, nothing can stay the same because you have people, have, we have to drop our own prejudices, our own projections, or, you know, it becomes just who you are with the mask off. Masks when we're all wearing them physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, right? It's very different. You know, it's been, it was interesting going to the farmer's market early on in the pandemic and, you know, everybody of course was masked and just, which they still are actually uh, when, mm -hmm. but, but there was a kindness that I've seen, especially early on, which was surprising that people's eye to eye contact, there was a kindness there as opposed to let's just rush and get my vegetables, Right. something that shifted. So it's been really interesting to have these these, you know, the bottom part of our faces, those of us who are not wearing transparent masks, you know, to, to have that happen and to, and then to kind of have our eyes be the main communicator, you know, and the eyes are supposed to be the window of the soul. So yeah, there's something very, uh, I think it's a teaching that we can learn from. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So if people would like to find you and your work, or perhaps even work with you, where can we guide them to? Well, one of the, thank you for asking that. Um, I think that if people are drawn, if, if people are interested in exploring their own story or doing some kind of storytelling presentation, or if they want to work on an energetic way in terms of how can they be present with power, I would recommend that one of the best ways to connect with me is through, um, is just go on to yourpowerpresence.com and just set up a 20 minute talk and I can, I'd love to hear what your story is and what you want. Um, otherwise, Facebook, uh, I have a page on a group on Facebook called Energy Matters. It's a pretty robust group. So they could look, look that up. And then of course, I have a website, which is my name, vickydelajoyo.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for all of your amazing wisdom. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I usually ask one question to wrap up. And that question is, if your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? Own your power presence now. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is just a delight to, to meet you, Whitney, and to have this. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time... Stay tuned in to you.